I had first attended the All Church Retreat in 2014. Um, at that point, I had been attending LMCC for just over two years. I had even joined a community group, and it was a great community group, lots of folks who were at a similar life stage as me um, that had been struggling through a lot of the same things. Um, but at that point, LMCC, I wouldn't have called it my church. I probably would have referred to it as a place I go on some Sundays. Um, and even though I had been baptized here, I was still living life the way I wanted to, picking a few things from the teachings that might make my life a little bit better, um, but I hadn't really started to or even desired to make my life completely subject to God's leading, and maybe that describes you today. Um, and then in 2014, the announcement about the retreat came, and the pastors you know, made the full court press, and I evaded, and I demurred, and then eventually I broke and decided to go uh, to the retreat. And I'm glad they pressed because that was probably the best decision I made that year. Um, two powerful things happened at that all-church retreat um, that made that the best decision I made all year. The first is that this whole body of people uh, went from being uh, that group of people, a church I called that church that I go to on Sundays, to becoming my people and beyond my community group. You know, it wasn't just some random folks whose faces I saw on Sunday, like we all had season tickets to the same football team. It was, it really became a family. And now, maybe you don't think you need this body of people to become your people. Maybe you're at the no new friends phase of life. I kind of was back then, too. Um, But I'll say this. I didn't realize what I was missing out on. Uh, I figured I was getting the fullness of community, of having a group of people who loved and cared about me and wanted what was best for me from my friends outside of church and from the small group of folks in my community group. But I learned that there was a lot more to community than that. And at that first retreat, I met some folks outside of my group who would eventually become my best friends, unlike any friends I've ever had, people who have walked with me through all kinds of seasons of life. And even though they've moved away from New York, many of them, that close bond remains. Um, And also older folks, people more mature in their faith who became mentors and surrogate spiritual parents and at you know, the young age of 25 in New York City, I had no idea how much I needed spiritual parents and spiritual big brothers and sisters, but gosh, I did. So um, that was the first big thing. And the second and more important powerful thing um, that happened at that all-church retreat was, and to be honest, this, you know, the first thing is only important as much as, as, uh, as, much as it relates to the second thing, which is that the retreat was a critical step in moving from snacking on a Jesus sampler every week where I'd get some good ideas each week from the teachings about what Jesus says, and I might apply them, and they might make my life a little better, I started to move from that sampling to really feasting on all that Jesus has to offer in and of himself. I began to move gradually into deep and personal relationship with him, toward walking with him. And that started to happen because that first retreat was the first time in a while that I let go of all the distractions of life, you know, work, all the trappings of being a young 20-something in New York City. And I opened up, and I opened myself up to encountering him, and I did encounter him there. And after that, Sunday church and Thursday community group just weren't enough. Um, I gradually began to just want more and more of Jesus in my life. So that said, I really encourage you to go. It might be the best decision you make this year. Um, I'm excited to meet some of you there and make new friends, and see how Jesus meets us all there, and begins to bring us all into deeper relationship with him and with each other. So, sign up. I'll see you there.
Thank you, Moses. I got a new word from there, demurred. I'm going to use that pretty often. Um, that's part of our full court press um, to begin to get you to register and join us April 8th to the 10th at our All Church Retreat. Um, it's going to be a unique time for this congregation, and I'm excited to see what God does there. Um, my name is Logan. I'm the lead pastor here at Lower Manhattan Community Church. Um, before I hop into this new sermon series, I, I want to give you an update. Last week we prayed for Ukraine and the ongoing war there. Um, I wanted to let you know that um, your generosity is assisting those who are being affected by what's going on over there. Um, over the years, our church has had the benefit of partnering uh, with Romanian Evangelical Medical Mission, REM, in Romania. And REM is uh, a beautiful, personal organization to this church. We call them family because they are our family. And over the course of their many decades of ministry, they've had to evolve to the needs that have existed in the surrounding area. And that's been medical missions, that's been orphanages, that's been housing, it's been making sure the needs of neighbors never go unmet. And they're doing it again. They are quickly evolving to take in refugees that are coming out of Ukraine into Romania. And last week we were able to give them an initial gift of $25,000 um, to make a way for them to not have any burdens uh, in trying to fulfill those needs. And that's a result of your generosity. Because you were generous and faithful to God and giving, it allows us to easily say, yes, how can we help? What can we do? Um, and so you've set us up as a church to react and respond where God says to give. Uh, and so I want to thank you for that. But I also want to continue in that spirit we started last week of prayer. Um, this is bigger than us, and we have no control over it. And it's a good reminder that there is one who is bigger than it and has control over it. And so I want to turn to God to pray for Rim, but also to pray for those that are being affected right now. Father, as we sing It Is Well, I think about families that are in bunkers, in metro stations, that would find it hard to declare that. But for those that know you, they might be able to sing in the face of it. So I ask that your spirit revive in them in the midst of their weariness, an ability to sing that song. We pray for our brothers and sisters at Rem in Romania. May you multiply our gift with many other gifts to them that they may never have to say no. They could always say yes to you and yes to those in need. God, we want to see an end of all wars. It is not your heart. And so sovereign king of the universe who can turn the hearts of kings, turn the hearts of leaders, let war cease and let your peace reign. <coughs> King Jesus, we ask this in your name. Amen. Well, I'm going to try to do a hard pivot off of that um, into our new sermon series. Um, as Marcy mentioned, we're in a season of Lent. That is a liturgical church calendar institution. It's not something that's found in the scriptures. 
it's used by the church to encourage rhythms that the scriptures challenge us to participate in. And it's this idea that we can easily veer away from regular rhythms to engage with God's call on our lives. And so how do we intentionally join with brothers and sisters around the world to engage in a season that is marked by repentance and renewal? Lent is a time of preparation for Easter. where We remember that Jesus died on the cross because of sin that existed and reigned in the world. To defeat the devil and sin and death through his resurrection. But part of preparation is to remember. To remember that there are things within us that actually led to the cross. And that we, by the power of the cross, can get rid of those things so that we can be filled with the hope of the resurrection. And that's the season that we're entering into. And I want to share with you um, three short passages of Scripture that are going to be marking my prayer for you and for myself um, over the course of this time, because we titled the sermon series, Lead Us Back. And the first scripture is 2 Corinthians chapter 5. It's verses 16 through 21. It'll be on the screen. So we have stopped evaluating others from a human point of view. At one time, we thought of Christ merely from a human point of view, how differently we know him now. This means that anyone belongs to Christ has become a new person. The old life is gone. A new life has begun. And all of this is a gift from God who brought us back to himself through Christ. And God has given us this task of reconciling people to him. For God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself, no longer counting people's sins against them. And he gave us this wonderful message of reconciliation. So we are Christ's ambassadors. God is making his appeal through us. We speak for Christ when we plead, come back to God. For God made Christ, who never sinned, to be the offering for our sins so that we might be made right with God through Christ. Part of my hope is that each of us would heed that call to come back to God and that we would be extending that call to others. Not a just come back to church, but come back to Jesus. Because that's what we were made for in relationship. But the second passage, this is a passage that actually Esther read on worship night. It's found in Acts chapter 3. It's from Peter, who's speaking to this idea of repentance leading to refreshing. Because I want this to be a refreshing season, even while sometimes it feels like a dark season. It's like, you want us to think about our mistakes? (laughs) That doesn't sound refreshing. Well, here's what Peter says. He says, friends, I realize that what you and your leaders did to Jesus was done in ignorance, but God was fulfilling what all the prophets have foretold about the Messiah, that he must suffer these things. Now repent of your sins and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped away, and then times of refreshment will come from the presence of the Lord, and he will again send you Jesus, your appointed Messiah. He makes this connection that the more that we remove from us sin, the more we can be filled with Jesus, the presence of God, and more filled with the presence, the more refreshing you are. And what he's saying is what you are feeling. You know, like the weariness of winter in New York City, where you're like, it's March, thank God it's 70, but it's going to be like 20 tomorrow. Like, there's a weariness of winter that we take on as the winter goes on. He says there's a weariness that comes from sin the longer that sin goes on. 
And there's a weariness not only from sin, but the effects of sin that we see. The effects of sin leading to war and sickness and disease, it wears on us. And if we can rid ourselves of it, we can be refreshed and strengthened again. And so that's where we hear Jesus say, Come to me, all you are weary, and I'll give you rest for your souls. There's a weariness of sin, and when we remove, we get a refreshment of God. But the last verse is from the words of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. And it needs to be our posture. Because in discussing sin, it's way easier to talk about other people's sin than to deal with our own. And he says, Do not judge others, and you will not be judged. For you will be treated as you treat others. The standard you use in judging is the standard by which you will be judged. And why worry about a speck in your friend's eye when you have a log in your own? How can you think of saying to your friend, let me help you get rid of that speck in your eye when you can't see past the log in your own eye? Hypocrite. First get rid of the log in your own eye, and then you will see well enough to deal with the speck in your friend's eye. It is easy to project and to identify the sins of others. It is much harder to be reflective and deal with the sins within us. And what he's saying is, imagine that you have a log coming out of your eye, so you have a little window where you can actually see anything. (laughs) Why in the world would you go, let me try to get that speck? And and they're like, get the log out of yours first. (laughs) See, this is an invitation for us not to look out of the world in judgment, but to look within and to allow for God's judgment and grace to overwhelm us and free us. So that when we look out to the world, we do see them as just having a speck. where they might think they have a log. But we see them through the loving eyes of God. And so that, as we enter into this season, is the invitation, come back to God. Experience refreshment. And let us not be a people that judge. So that's where we're heading. And I wanted to focus um, on one topic today, because over the course of these next um, six or seven Sundays leading up to Easter, six, I don't know, bad with numbers, We're going to deal with one topic after another as an invitation for you to consider how that issue has made its way into your life. But I realized in preparation for this that we're all coming with different opinions about what sin actually is. And also a different opinion of how God approaches and deals with sin. And then we have differences of how we deal with sin. And so what I want to provide today is a framework. A framework to help us define sin, to truly understand how God approaches sin, so that that can inform how we approach sin. Instead of us coming with opinions, and I love the differing opinions that exist in this congregation, and may it never cease, but come with your opinion to God, and let God reorient your opinion to His truth. And so I want to define sin, look at God's approach and response to sin, so that we then have a same approach and response to sin. But first, the difficult challenge of defining sin in five minutes. Now listen, we don't like to talk about sin. Um, We ignore it. We've tried to explain it away as an issue of individuality so that we can present ourselves as a very tolerant people that are loving and compassionate because we never want anyone to feel offended by our opinions around wrongdoing. But in our silence, we've allowed for confusion to reign. 
And where confusion reigns, chaos follows. And God is not a God of confusion, a God of chaos. He is a God of clarity and of order. And so we want to speak how he speaks of these things and these issues. So as we go into defining sin, the first time we hear sin in the scripture is in Genesis chapter 4. God is talking to Cain and Abel, specifically to Cain, saying, I'm seeing that you're angry and you want to kill your brother. Maybe don't do that. He says, but sin is crouching at your door and it seeks to control you. Just imagine that scene. How good of God to see a struggle of one person and to show up and say, this is your struggle. I have made you to love your brother. I've made you with specific ways and talents and skills, and I want you to go after that design. But sin, which is inviting you to miss that mark, to miss my design of your life, is crouching at your door, and it wants to control how you see me and how you see your brother. And the definition of sin simply was missing the mark. That God has a design for your life. And when we veer away from it, that is sin. Now over time, the language of Scripture starts to expound on that in different definitions, and it's come to be a fairly simplistic understanding in religious circles that sin is like crime in the eyes of God. That it is a punitive approach, that God has rules and orders, and we've broken that law. And so it is that. He says he uses language of transgressions and iniquity that literally mean you have broken my laws and my requests of you. But he never simplifies sin down to just being that. And as Judaism has grown and expanded, rabbinic Judaism has created what's called the Talmud. And the Talmud is a guide to religious practice for Jewish circles. And in the Talmud, they have this saying to try to help understanding what God has asked of you, where it says that you should be as great as Moses, and none of you will be as great as Moses. Which sounds like a religious leader, right? And what he is saying, or what the Talmud is trying to hint at, is that God has a design for your life, and his aim is that you would reach the full potential of that design. That as you follow him, he is wanting you to have the fullness of joy and purpose and peace and meaning to your life. And when you veer off that path of goodness that he has for you, that's missing the mark. But he also says none of us will ever be as good as Moses. Because Moses is the example of trying for them of what it looks like to reach the pinnacle of following God's call, regardless of the pain and the process. He's also saying no one will be as good. No one is perfect. And so we will never fall into this path of perfect potential. And so embrace this two reality. Mainly what he's trying to hint at is that sin is greater than just doing wrong. It's not doing what God's called you to do. It is the good that you miss as much as the bad that you do. And so this expansive definition of sin continues to grow throughout the scriptures. So there's a, there's a book... Um, it's actually, it claims it's a brevity of sin, which means a brief summary. It is not brief, <laughs> nor is it easy to read, but it's beautiful. Um, Cornelius Plantinga Jr. wrote it. It's called Not the Way It's Supposed to Be. And he's hinting at this idea that that's what sin is, not the way it's supposed to be. 
And this is how he defines sin. Sin is any act or disposition, any thought, desire, emotion, word, or deed, or its particular absence that displeases God and deserves blame. Now that is a big definition of sin. But he's getting that from the words of the Old Testament and the words of Jesus himself. When Jesus arrives in the Sermon on the Mount, he says, if you hate your brother, it's as if you've murdered him. If you've lusted, it's as if you committed adultery. He says that it is not merely the actions that you participate in, it's an issue of the heart. That there's a depth of sin as an infectious disease comes and infects every part of who you are, so sin comes and affects every part of who you are. It's not merely the actions and behavior, it is a condition within that affects how, what you love and what you care about. I like how he expands on the definition, so let me continue to read a quote from him. He says, Sin is also, and perhaps primarily, an affective disorder or malfunction. Our affections are skewed, directed to the wrong objects. We love and hate the wrong things. Instead of seeking first the kingdom of God, I am inclined to seek first my own personal glorification and aggrandizement, bending all my efforts toward making myself look good. Instead of loving God above all and my neighbor as myself, I'm inclined to love myself above all and indeed to hate God and my neighbor. He's speaking to how sin takes over. The words that Jesus, where God said to Cain, sin will control you. And this is the language that Paul, a former rabbi converted to Christianity, speaks of, where he says that sin is like a power that holds you captive in prison. It is a bondage that forces you to live only in one pattern that you cannot break free from. See, sin is defined as wrongdoing. It's defined as a disease we need to be healed from. It's defined as bondage that you cannot break free from on your own. You need external help and a power that will control you. It's a problem. And God sees it as a problem. And so even as we define sin, what I want to turn to is I want to look at God's approach to sin. This is the most important thing I think you can grasp. Because too many of us have a view of an angry, distant God watching us toe the line of His rules, and when we step out, bam, He's ready to crush us. That our dreams and our disappointments are the results of us not doing exactly what God wanted all the time. So we have to ask, what is God's approach to sin? And to give you a little bit of another framework on that, it's simply the approach of a loving Father. That's how the Scriptures describe Him. And I say loving father because not all of us had one, and so we project the language of the scripture of God the Father, of our fatherly experience, imperfect, no matter who they were, on to God himself. But a loving father that is consistently asking, how do I help my children avoid the things that harm them? That's God's primarily approach to sin. How do I help my children avoid the things that will harm them? We see it in Adam and Eve in the garden. He's like, I'll make it simple. I'll make it a 50-50 choice. In fact, I'll double down and weigh it on one hand. I'll say, you can have all of these things, except that one. I'll make it easy. And we failed the marshmallow test, right? <laughs> then with Cain and Abel, he does something similar too. You just have to do this one thing. And he doesn't. So he says, okay, let me, let me start over. 
Let me start from scratch and create a new people that have seen my mercy. Maybe that'll be different with Noah and the flood. No different. Maybe if I create a people and they experience all my blessings and all prosperity and all my promises through Abraham and they see it, maybe then, because they see how good I am, they won't choose to reject me. Nope. Oh, maybe they just don't, uh, there's not a lot of clarity about what is right or wrong. I'll give them laws. In fact, I'll give them 611 of them through Moses. And then they'll know everything they need to do to love me and to love others. Isn't that what we want? <laughs> give me a new law. <laughs> Tell me what I'm supposed to do, what I'm not supposed to do. And it doesn't change the outcome. And then he sends prophet after prophet. Come back. Come back to God. He loves you. He wants what's good for you. Leave behind those ways of the world. Come back to me. He wants you. He desires you. He can't wait to restore what you've lost in sin. Come back. Prophet after prophet. King after king. Come back. Come back. Come back. Time and time again, we fail it. And as a loving father, he allows us to experience the consequences of sin. Because you can't control your kids. You can't control the outcome of their lives. You and I can't even control ourselves, let's be honest. And there are actions that lead to consequences. And sometimes the only way we learn is through consequence. And so he allows us to experience it, but it grieves him. Part of the pleading of the prophets is, please stop doing it, it's hurting you. Come back to life and peace and joy and blessing. But they continue to turn. And then there's this language in the prophets that starts to go, okay, I'm going to do a new thing. All those ways didn't work. It didn't change the condition of the heart. Let me do a new thing where I'll change their hearts. I'll write the, the laws, not in, in things they can read, but I'll write it on their hearts so they feel it through their conscience and their minds. But How? See, a cursory reading of the Old Testament could create in your mind a God who is a distant rule maker and enforcer. I could see that. I could see the conclusion of a wrathful God that can't wait to punish if you just read a cursory way through. But God didn't leave us there. In comes Jesus. And the questions of what God loves and what he's like and how he approaches sin in steps the exact representation of who he is, Jesus Christ of Nazareth, God and man. And we don't just get to hear him teach, we get to hear him love and hear him and see him actually interact with sinners. <laughs> because the response of the Old Testament was two things. I can't do that, so I'm going to live however I want, hope God's okay with it, or I'm going to be perfect. And I'm going to try to figure out how to perfectly obey God. Religious and irreligious response. And the religious leaders at that time said, we figured it out and you guys suck. And Jesus comes in and he's like, I love them and you guys suck. And in both, he's trying to say, please welcome freedom into your life. You're never going to be perfect by your rule following. And you're never going to be joyful by avoiding God's design. He's inviting them back. And over and over again, Jesus says, it's an issue of your heart because out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks and hurts people. Out of the overflow of your desires, you offend and take from people. But ultimately, what we see Jesus do 
is what we read about in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. For God made Christ to never sin, to be the offering for our sin, so that we could be made right with God through Christ. How much does a loving father love his kids? He would come himself in the person of Jesus and be crucified so that the things that harm you would no longer control you. So that by his resurrection, he could say fully and finally, I've defeated the power of sin and death. So you don't have to live that way anymore. And by faith, I'll put my spirit within you so you have a new power, a power to say no to sin instead of just saying no to God. A power in the face of temptation to say, yes, I like that pleasure, but God has better pleasure for me. See, God's approach and response to sin is one of instruction. It's proactive. I will tell you what is true and good. I will pursue you when you walk away. I will pursue you unto death if that's what it takes, and it did. So that in resurrection, you can see that I react by taking the punishment on myself, not leaving it on your shoulders. So that you would know the full grace and mercy and my willingness to love you at great lengths and sacrifice. Sin had great consequences, and so did God's love, so that you would no longer walk in the consequences of your sin. That's God's approach. And what you need to see is it's so different than the world, and often different than the church. The world, when you step out of bounds and you say the wrong things, they can't wait to crucify you. They can't wait to cut you out. They can't wait to cut you off. They can't wait to tell you where you did wrong in that little nuance and that little word. We are in a world that rushes to judge and condemn as tolerant as we think we are. And the church is no different. See, part of what I'm trying to do in this sermon series and what our pastors will be leading you through is to not align with church history and its response to sin, but to align with Jesus Christ in its approach and response to sin. Because the church has joined the world in often telling people they're not welcome here. The church has often told the world, unless you look in a certain way and have a certain lifestyle, life stage, etc., you're not welcome here. <laughs> but that's not the words of Jesus. That's not the life of Jesus. That when he sees the lame, he bends down to heal. Because he doesn't want disease to affect you. When he sees someone literally caught in the middle of sin and dragged in front and condemned, he says, oh, if whoever is perfect, cast the first stone. Get that log out of your eyes, what he's saying. That's God's approach in response to sin. It's better than the world. It's better than the church. It's the person of Jesus. And that's why he's so great. That's why he's king. That's why he's so marvelous. That's why we sing of him. That's why we run to him. Because we will always find love and grace. And it's his loving kindness that leads us to repentance. And so now we turn from God's approach to our approach. And in your approach to sin, I want you to consider how you are proactive and how you are reactive towards sin. Specifically, what are you pursuing and what is your posture towards sin? If God says, I'm going to pursue you so you don't sin, if we were to follow him, we would pursue his life so that we're full of that, 
So sin has no room. What does it look like for you to pursue things that are healthy for your soul? Life-giving. Breath to you. Something that will give you exactly what God intended for you. And that requires that you don't make room for unhealthy soul activities. And this is where it gets more uncomfortable and awkward. (laughs) Because it's time to do an inventory. What are the healthy activities of our lives? What are the unhealthy activities of our lives? What are we making more room for? If you're making more room for unhealthy activities, guess what you get? Unhealth. If you're making more room for healthy activities, guess what you get? Health. That's the invitation, is that we would see God is so pursuant on our life, life abundantly, that we would say, let me just join you. If you're after that for me, why don't I follow you? It'll be way easier than me trying to make up the good life. Because I just can't make it happen. But the second thing that I think is most important, because we are not as good as Moses, both Moses Shoyola and the Moses in the Bible, (laughs) is our posture. I just want to save the suspense. You're going to sin again. You're going to see someone sin against you. What's your posture? And the scriptures say, start with the posture towards yourself. Are you as gracious to yourself as God is to you? Are you as merciful to yourself as God is to you? What I mean is, when you sin, do you run to guilt and shame? The way Adam and Eve did, the way that Cain did, the way that anybody else did. Is it your pattern to just sit in guilt, hide in shame, and just sit there? The crazy thing of God is He says, when you sin, you can turn to me and my love for you doesn't change. (laughs) You can sin and then turn and say, God, you love me because I'm your son in Jesus. You don't count my sin against me anymore because what Jesus did for me. You see me as righteous. You did a great exchange. You don't see me as sin. You see me as righteous in Jesus. You can declare that even though you don't feel it. Because none of us in the middle of sin feel really great. (laughs) And yet there's a declaration over us that is truer than our feelings. Cornelius Plantinga says that human sin is stubborn but not as stubborn as the grace of God and not half so persistent, not half so ready to suffer to win its way. Sin can feel stubborn, right? It can feel like you're trapped and unable to be set free. But grace is more stubborn, the grace of God. It's never-ending, never-stopping, unfailing love that pursues you until you change. And so that's an invitation to repent quickly. Your posture, when sin comes in, should be to repent quickly. Now, repent is usually an angry word put on a sign and yelled on the street corners in New York City. Or yelled in the subway car if you ever go back to the subways. It's still there. Repent in the scriptures is this beautiful invitation. It says, you're heading down a wrong path. Turn around. Um, When my boys were little, they probably don't remember this. I had the privilege of walking them to elementary school. And one day we would play like 
we would turn and say, like, who's going to be the leader today? Because there's a thousand different ways to get to one destination in New York City. And said, so you get to choose how we get there. So we're going to learn about repentance. <laughs> a fun game, right? And I'm going to say repent, and every time we have to turn around and go in the opposite direction. And it took twice as long to get to school. But it was worth it. Because we were, it was a dance we were doing. It was like we were walking, and I would say repent, and we'd all turn. It was repent, and we all turn. It was like, are we ever going to get to school? I don't know, but we're definitely going to get down the concept of repentance. Because I wanted it to be fun for them. What if repentance became fun for us? What if it became something that was like, I get to repent of the things that are harming me and return to the God who loves me? That sounds awesome. Like, if you were headed towards New Jersey and... The, and, and okay. If you were headed towards Delaware... And Siri said, recalculating, repent. You're like, thank you, I get to go to, not Jersey, but New York City. <laughs> New York City is more fun than Delaware. It's more fun than Jersey. Sorry, Jersey folks. Repentance can be fun. If the one that you're running back to is full of life and joy. And you're running back to the face of a loving father who's got a robe and a ring and says, finally, I've been waiting. Let's have a party. A posture that when sin comes out of you, that you repent quickly. That when sin comes at you, that you forgive quickly as you've been forgiven. You know I love Ted Lasso. The best scene in all of Ted Lasso is when there's finally a confession. I'm going to ruin it for you because you had plenty of time to watch it and I tried to make you. She comes and confesses, I've had this nefarious plan to ruin your life and destroy you. I was wrong and I'm sorry. And she's expecting him to yell and to storm out and to be so offended. Ted Lasso pauses. He stands up. He looks her right in the eyes. He says, I forgive you. <laughs> she doesn't know what to do. Imagine you doing that to your boss. Imagine you doing that to your coworker. Imagine that you doing that to your kid or your child doing it to you. Imagine. Imagine what it looks like to be a people that are so postured towards sin like God that we repent quickly, that we forgive quickly, but lastly that we confess freely. If Jesus has truly paid for all of your sin, why do you give it power by letting it live in the dark? That's what Paul asks in the book of Ephesians. He says, sin reigns in the dark. That's where the devil loves to live. But when you bring in th things through the light, it has no power. It's like walking around a dark room that you don't really know, and you're scared because you know you're going to hit your shin on something. It's always the shin. And the lights go on, and the darkness has no power anymore. I can see where I need to go and what's going to be good for me to go towards. Let's invite God to give us a greater framework for how sin might have affected our lives. But let's do so because we have a God who approaches our sin as a loving father that can't wait to say, I don't want you to have harm anymore. I want you to have life and life abundantly. And then may we be a people that approach sin in the same way. 
not just individually, but as a community. It's not that in community group we need to have a confession sesh. Like, that's no fun. But as Moses spoke to, there were people that come into your life that become so intimately connected that you're okay being fully exposed. Because you know when you say that this is the sin, they say, I get it. What's happened to you? How you've been harassed? How you've been frustrated? I can get how you got there. But let's get out of there. Let's go back to Jesus together. Let's go back to Jesus together. Uh, coming out of COVID, the world is hurting. The world was hurting in the middle of it in a thousand different ways, but we found ways to cope. None of us have come out unscathed. The stats speak for themselves, but so do your souls. We're weary, we're worn out, and we have a God who wants to come and give us a drink and new strength. But there's work to do. Repentance for times of refreshing. That's the invitation of this season of Lent. Every Wednesday when we do worship and prayer, every Sunday when we gather, when you gather with your community group, that when we come into the retreat, we might say, I'm so ready for God because I'm so done with sin. And I found God to be more beautiful. And I can't wait for Easter. My worship will be different because I've seen the freedom. I've tasted the joy. I've tasted the life that he's replaced in me. This could be a beautiful season for our church, and I hope you're a part of it. I know I'm excited to be part of it. So let's pray. Father, that's who you are. You are a good, good father. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for a long-suffering, loving kindness. Mercy. Thank you that your mercy triumphed over your judgment. You had every right. But thank you for Jesus who stepped in to take more than the judgment. but to lose so that we might gain. What a wonderful Savior you are, Jesus. Holy Spirit, it's your work to convict the heart and to reveal the mind. It's only your spirit that causes anybody to say, I'd rather have Jesus than these temporary trappings. So Spirit, you're welcome here. Come and do your work now. I ask in Jesus' name. Amen.